0: Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Haggai chapter two, uh, verses one to nine. Uh, so, in the green church Bibles, it's page one, no, page nine four eight, and in the large print Bibles, one four seven four. Haggai chapter two, and I'm going to read verses one to nine. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by our nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house Will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Well, this is the word of the Lord Almighty. And it's a word which this morning uh, should really encourage us. Uh, We're going to think about this uh, question What keeps the Christian going when they are discouraged? Now, I am really excited uh, about this passage. This is amazing truths that we see here. And we are going to be encouraged this morning. So I hope you're ready uh, to be encouraged, because that is what we are going to be. Uh, If we can understand what God is saying, this is the best news ever, okay? But I'm going to start with uh, a story. Um, When uh, I was a teenager... Uh, We never went on many family holidays, but we did go on one particular one, uh, camping uh, in France, and then we drove down to Switzerland on this camping trip, and we took our our mountain bikes with us. And my stepdad, uh, who was in the Royal Marines, when he went on a, a walk or a bike ride, it was never just like... A couple of miles around the block, it was always like an expedition, like a training exercise for the Marines, which meant usually it was only me and him that went. And there was one day, we, we got up at five in the morning, got our bikes, and he said, today we are going to cycle up this mountain. And the mountain was it, it was massive, and it was all stones and rocks going up. And I was looking at the path, looking at the distance, and I was thinking, like, I'm no, there's no way that I'm going to be able to do this. He could do it, no problem. Raw Marines, no pain, you know, whatever, all that kind of stuff. But he was going to take me up this mountain. And it was horrible. Like, it was the, the, like, the worst thing ever, trying to get up this mountain on my bike. It took us hours, like hours and hours to get up. But here's how I got to the top. There were two ways I managed to reach the top of this mountain. The first was my stepdad said to me, I'm not going to go too far ahead. I'll stay with you the whole time. And I've got heaps of sweets and snacks in my backpack. And so you can have all you can eat. And so as we were going up, we stopped every so often, um, me a lot. Um, sometimes actually he said he would always stop, but some of the time he just said, you're a wimp, come on, keep going. Uh, but, and he Or if you can reach me, you can have some Haribo, that kind of thing. Uh, but his presence with me going ahead of me, giving me what I needed, helped me to get up. But the other thing that really helped me was he said this. When we get to the top, he said, there is a downhill, a road that is the best road you will ever go down. It was the biggest hill ever. You'll love it. And when we get to the bottom, I'll buy you lunch, which was a big deal because he would never buy me lunch. So as I'm going up the mountain, I'm eating Haribo, um, I'm, I'm seeing him in front of me, I know we can do this, and we get to the top, and I tell you what, the downhill, it took us about four hours to get to the top, it took us 20 minutes to get down. Coasting down this hill, it was amazing, and we got to the bottom, and I had my lunch at the end. Now, why am I telling you this story? Because that little story illustrates perfectly exactly what Haggai 2one 1-9 is saying. What it's saying is this, as God's people... There are times when it's going to feel like a slog, just like trying to get up that mountain on my pedals. But there are two things which gets us to the end. Number one, the presence of God is with us, helping us always, because he's gone ahead of us, and he doesn't just leave us behind. He takes us with him. Number two, the end is going to be amazing and well worth the climb. You see? If you don't understand anything else about Haggai 2, 1 to 9, that's what I want you to go home with. And it's the most encouraging news that we can hear. Okay, so that's the outline that we're going to go through. Chapter 1 of Haggai has been like a challenge. It's been really hard in many ways because it's been challenging us on not making excuses, on stepping up and serving God. Today, we are going to see why it's worth it. Why it is worth doing the challenge that God sets us in chapter 1. So, the timestamp stamp on the prophecies in verse 1, notice that. It is the second year of King Darius. It's the 21st day of the second month, so it's the 17th of October, 520 BC. It is 26 days, less than a month after the work had begun. It didn't take long for the people to start getting discouraged. Same with us, right? It doesn't take long for discouragement and disappointment to set in. The work wasn't progressing as fast as they wanted to. God's work never seems to progress as fast as we want it to. And so it can become discouraging. Now this particular date might not be significant to anyone here, but it was to the people of Judah. So the 17th of October isn't significant to many of you. It might be someone's birthday, I don't know. But for them, it was like me saying to you, the 11th of November or the 25th of December. Those dates mean something to us, don't they? Okay? Now, for these people, this date was important because, number one, it was the Feast of Ingathering, which was the climax of the Feast of Tabernacles. The ingathering was the harvest festival, and the tabernacles celebrated a time when God led his people out of Egypt, through the wilderness, into the Promised Land, during which time they lived in tabernacles or tents. But these celebrations of the harvest and the tabernacles were sad at this time. The harvest reminded them of their lack of harvest. We saw that in Haggai 1. And the tabernacles should have been significant because God had just led them back from Babylon, back to the promised land. But they were reminded, as they were under the yoke of the Persian Empire, of how unsettled they were, of how the land wasn't really their own. And furthermore, this date was the date that Solomon had dedicated the first temple, a magnificent structure that was part of an influential nation in the world at the time. And so as they celebrated amongst the ruin and the the rubble, they were reminded of how far they had fallen and how much they longed for the days of the past. And so this celebration was a bit like a, a, a Christmas on EastEnders or something, or a Christmas when everyone's falling out, or someone's sick. Um, it's not much of a, of a celebration at all. They're discouraged. They're upset. They're sad. And that really is the, the first point of the passage. And I said this was an encouraging sermon. It, it does get there. Uh, but the first point is when there are times of discouragement. That's what we see in verses 1 to 3. Because in the midst of that discouragement, God has a message for the people. So notice verse 2. Uh, Again, God speaks to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the remnant. We've looked at those uh, last time. The same group of people, uh, beginning with the leaders, impacting the whole population, the whole of God's people. And the message in verse 3 begins by highlighting their situation. He asks three questions. Do you notice them in verse three? Number one, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? So it's referring to Solomon's temple before it was destroyed. Now there wouldn't have been many left who had seen Solomon's temple. Uh, It was destroyed about 70 years ago and so the people who saw it would be at the youngest at their late 70s, early 80s, And so not many people were there who would have saw that. No doubt those people would have told stories of the old temple. Uh, The splendor of it was in living memory. No doubt they were pining for the old days. Um, It made me think, actually, in our our church, there's a number of uh, football fans, and almost all of them support clubs that had former glory, (laughs) I went to watch Plymouth Argyle yesterday, because that's where I'm from. Plymouth Argyle have never had glory, so I can't hark back to any days of former glory. But there are fans in this church of Aston Villa, of Liverpool, of Nottingham Forest, of Man United, of Chelsea, all of whom used to have glory. They've all won the European Cup. I went with Me and Dan went to watch Preston play Plymouth yesterday. And Preston have a thing on their, in their stadium about the Invincibles. They went for a season of never losing. It was in 1888 and 89. <laughs> That's their glory. It's, it's, well, it's long gone, isn't it? But many fans go on and on about the glory, about the former glory, which can be discouraging for the current team when there isn't much hope of glory in the short term. And like those football fans that go on about the former glory, these older people in Judah were saying how much better the old days were. In fact, Haggai points this out. Look at his second question. How does it look to you now? Well, the present state of the temple was a work in progress, but mainly a pile of rubble. The foundations were smaller than Solomon's. God's glory didn't appear to be there. And so the third question says, does it not seem to you like nothing? The key problem, though, that was most discouraging was not so much the size. It wasn't that much difference in the size of the temple. It wasn't even necessarily the magnificence of it or the lack of. Although Solomon's uh, temple was magnificent, a lot of treasure actually had been brought back from Babylon at this time. Those who remembered Uh, remembered um, a great temple, but this wasn't, wasn't the worst temple ever. The biggest problem was that the old temple was at the center of a religious and political life of an independent nation. And now they lacked influence and they were under the yoke of a foreign power. It was discouraging. The glory days were long gone. There seemed to be no hope of them coming back The project seemed to be pointless, a lot of work for seemingly little return, and this was a crisis moment just 26 days in, when people were thinking, what's the point? Why are we serving in the kingdom of God? It just seems so pointless, it seems so pitiful. And I think that the discouragement of God's people in 520 BC is the same kind of discouragement that we have in 2023, isn't it? Let's think about how we might be discouraged as God's people today. First of all, we live in a culture where Christianity once was influential. But now we feel like we're under the control of a foreign power, one who wants to believe that the biblical worldview is wrong, and nobody wants to listen to the gospel anymore. That can be discouraging. And people can think, well, the the old days were better. used to be really good in this country. And stories of the past and stories of church history, they can be helpful. And they are helpful and they are good, but they also can be used to be discouraging too when we can be told, well, the old days are so much better. There's no point in working now. You're never going to be as good. I had that one. Someone say that to me one time Uh, when we were planning uh, many years ago a holiday club. I had someone actually tell me, well, when we used to do it, it was so much better. (laughs) You'll never have it as good as us. I mean, I went away dead encouraged. But I would encourage encourage older Christians especially to be careful in this regard. Encourage us with stories of how God worked in the past. And we will be doing that in our 50th anniversary this year. But don't discourage by making it seem that the present work of the church is just rubbish and not any good. Do you see the difference? We need encouragement in every generation, to keep going with what God can do in our generation. Not to be told, those days have gone. But discouragement can come through other sources as well. Uh, Serving in the church can seem like slow work with not much progress. People can be uh, difficult to work with and appear or even be unappreciative of what we're doing. Sometimes the world can seem like a better option to go to. Why am I making all these sacrifices for Jesus? We, we, we look, at like, look like we're working on some pitiful enterprise and the world seems like it's amazing. It's flashy and, and big and, and great. We think, well, why didn't we just do that instead? Often our, our battles against sin is just hard. Our circumstances can be really difficult due to health and finances or whatever and we just want to give up. There are multiple reasons, aren't there, why we can be discouraged. And all of us feel those discouragements at times. And some even are here this morning. I know in a, size of a, congregation, uh, a congregation of this size, there will be people here today who are discouraged this morning. Maybe you are discouraged and finding it hard and wondering why am I carrying on. Well, here's the great thing to hear today. Haggai gives us two encouragements to keep us going in our service in God's kingdom when we feel discouraged. The first encouragement is the second point of the passage. To keep going as a Christian servant, we must consider the promised presence. So in verse 4, we see, but now, that indicates a change of perspective. Turning our minds from the crisis, from the discouragement in front of us, from pining for past glories to encouraging us with the truth of God's word. So first of all, Haggai says to the people, be strong. Uh, To be strong is is, is a physical, mental, moral attitude that is able to do what's required and and go for it. In the context, be strong here means follow God's word even though you're discouraged. Follow God's word even when it's hard. Keep going. Haggai, in fact, says be strong there three times. Do you notice that? To Joshua, to Zerubbabel, and all the people of the land. Uh, The people of the land probably refers to everyone in Judah. Those who returned from exile, those who stayed there uh, uh, during the exile. Basically, the whole community, everyone is told, be strong. Secondly, they are told to use this strength at the end of verse 4 to work. Keep going in your service. Keep building the temple. Be strong and work. Now, the command to be strong and work would not actually be very encouraging if, it, if that was it. It's, it's a bit like, um, just man up and get on with it. Um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, you, if you've got children, they'll come to you with, like, oh, I fell over and bumped my knee and you'll just say, oh, you'll be all right, off you go. And sometimes they might genuinely have hurt themselves and you're just not very helpful. If we just tell someone, if they're coming with discouragement, just be strong and work. That's not encouraging. But that's not what these words are about. Because there is a basis behind the be strong and work. A reason why we can be strong. A reason why we can strive and work. In fact, there are three reasons given in verses 4 and 5. The first reason is this. The Lord Almighty is with you. Look at the end of verse 4. For, here is the reason why you can be strong and work. I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is important because Solomon, when he was going to build the first temple the one they were celebrating the dedication of on this day, the same promise was made to him. So in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 20, David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the temple of the Lord is finished. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us. The Lord is with us. He will not forsake us. He will stay with us until we have finished the work he's given us to do. And the same promise is given through Haggai as the people here build the new temple. Uh, By the way, the name Lord Almighty is important here. We've looked at this before, but remember the Lord is the personal name of God for his people. He's their God. Almighty refers to his power. Lord of hosts or armies, the whole of heaven is at his disposal. And in fact, this name, Lord Almighty, notice it appears six times in these verses alone. So we can be strong and do the work because the Lord, our God, almighty, all-powerful God is with us. That's the first reason. That's a good reason, isn't it? That's a good reason. But there's a second reason that develops the first reason. Number two. The Lord Almighty is bound to you. Notice in verse 5 how the Lord relates his presence with them to the covenant he made with them when they came out of Egypt. When the people of Israel left Egypt from slavery, God covenanted with them. He promised them that he would be with them. So in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 14, God says this My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. It was a promise. My presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. A promise by God to his people through Moses. And at the Feast of Tabernacles on this October day, God reminded them of the promise he made in the wilderness when they were in their tabernacles. Until the temple was built, God dwelt in a tabernacle and was with the people. And God promised to be with the people during this interruption in the temple building, just like he was before the first temple was built. God's presence is, is not just a kind of a pick-me-up. It's not kind of a um, you know, mind game. It's a promise that he's bound by. He is with us. He has to be with us because he's promised to be with us. You see? He's bound by that promise to be with you. And he will never leave you. He can't leave you. Because God's covenanted to be so. Well, the final reason we can be strong and work goes even deeper still. Because we see, thirdly, that the Lord Almighty is in you. He is in you. Notice at the end of verse 5 how God says his spirit will remain among them. This is speaking of God's Holy Spirit who is himself God. He permanently then will remain among them. With his people. That's what he's saying here. The Spirit, I will come and I will be with you. I will remain with you. Now in the Old Testament, this presence was among them. But the promise of the New Covenant or the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit comes and doesn't just be around the believer, but is in the believer. God lives in us. In us. John 14 Uh, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit, the helper, will come. He will help us to obey God's word. The Holy Spirit will enable us, in other words, to be strong and to work. You see? God lives in us as his people. And for, for for the Christian, if we've asked God to forgive us of our sins, we believe that Jesus has died for us, he's risen from the dead, God the Spirit comes and lives in us. He's not just out there somewhere He's not even just around here somewhere. He is in you. He is in you. And so we are able to be strong and do the work he's given us to do. I, one of my favorite films when I was a teenager was uh, Space Jam, um, where because Mike, Mike, I really like Michael Jordan. And the, the bad guys in the film take the abilities and the talents of the NBA players from the NBA players and make them their own. So the NBA players started playing basketball, a bit like I play football. They were no longer superstar players. But the bad guys had the ability to do their skills and have the basketball skills. Now, we're not bad guys kind of stealing power, but God does give us the ability in us to enable us to do that work he's given us to do. He's not, he, we actually have God in us. Do you see? That's what I'm saying. So we're not called to be strong by just pulling up, our, pull up your bootstraps and do better. We are called to be strong because we have the almighty God by his spirit in us to enable us to get on with the task. Zechariah preached at the same time as Haggai. He also encouraged them with the work of building the temple. Zechariah said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. That's how we can be strong and work. You can serve God. You can do the work God has given you to do. You can obey his word because he's in you. We need to to grasp this. We need to grasp it so we can fulfill what God has for us. We need to know God is with us because the tasks are impossible without him. So you can tell others about Jesus. For those of us who are elders, we can can be elders. For those of you that are deacons, you can't be a deacon if you do not know that God is in you. But you can if he is. When you're fighting sin, you can fight sin. When you're parenting, it's hard but you can do this because God is in you. When you're caring for relatives, he gives you the strength to do what you need to do. When you're serving in any area in the local church, whether you're when you're at work and you're 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 leading or you're serving or whatever you're doing, you have the ability within you, by God's power, to do what you're called to do. He is with you, and so as we step out, He will help us. Now that's encouraging, isn't it? Isn't that encouraging? We can keep going because He's with us. But I could stop the sermon there, and we could sing, and I'd be encouraged, but it gets even better because in verses 6 to 9, we we see that whilst God is in us and he's helping us, it's also really good to know that what we're doing is worthwhile. So he's not in us to help us do something that's pointless. He's in us to help us do something that is glorious. And so in verses 6 to 9, we are called to consider the future glory, to consider the future glory. This is like the the top of the mountain with the downhill and the lunch at the end, but infinitely better. So verse 6, In a little while means soon or imminently. But at the same time, there's a period of waiting. And God says, I will once more, which means he's going to do something that he's done previously. What is he going to do? Well, let's read. In a little while, I will once more, Shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Now, shaking is the language of uh, theophany. That is, appearances of God. So just two examples. Uh, In Exodus 19, listen to what happens on Mount Sinai when God showed up. It says, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. And then the Psalms, uh, a couple of examples there. Uh, The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The Lord reigns, let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim, let the earth shake. Basically, uh, in the Bible, when God shows up, things begin to shake. That's what happens when God turns up. And what we're reading here then is an intervention of God. The earth will shake. The cosmos, the heavens will shake and in verse 7, he will shake the nations. So it's speaking both of the judgment of the nations and a, a changing of the world order that affects all nations. But what it's saying is God is going to come. God is going to come, and when God comes, things shake. Now what is the purpose of this shaking? What is the purpose of this divine intervention in the universe? Well, we're told in verse 7, look at what it says. And what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. Well, the question of this verse is this. What is desired by all nations? Well, the answer in part, actually, is found in verse 8, because God speaks there of silver and gold being his. And so the desire spoken of is power shown through money, And it's the language of political tribute. So in these days where Haggai is written, uh, nations would show their power by receiving tribute from other countries. So other nations would come and they would pay them to be nice to them, basically is what would happen. And the the tribute would be an acknowledgement that this power who I'm giving tribute to is the real power, is really in charge. It's an acknowledgement of sovereignty. And nations desire power. That's what's desired by nations. It's always been the way. The powerful nations of the world today, they don't demand tribute in the same way as here, but they do get tribute in various forms. The point God, though, that God is making, though, is, is this: A time is coming when all nations will bring their tribute to God's house. All nations will recognize God is sovereign. All nations will know that God is king because he's going to shake the nations so they see it. He is the king over the nations, and he always has been, but a time is coming when they will be shaken and they will recognize him as king. Does that make sense? Well, in the future, when this happens, the temple will be filled with glory at the end of verse 7. Uh, Glory in the temple can refer to splendor in terms of treasure within it, and I guess that's part of it. But really, the glory of the temple in the Old Testament has always been the presence of God. Uh, In the old temple, the glory of God's presence came down in the form of a cloud and rested in the holy place. And God's presence, he's saying then, will dwell with his people again. That's the glory, the presence of God. And God can do this because in verse 8 we read that he owns all the treasures of the world anyway. All that tribute that's being bought to those nations. Even today, you know, all the, the despots of this world that, fi- that shake their fist at God. They're only doing it because God, God allows it. God owns everything. God is sovereign. Nobody's king over him. And one day everybody will see that. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So the question that we should probably be asking right now is this. How is this promise in Haggai 2 fulfilled? And the, the, the answer is most exciting. Uh, what we're going to do is that we're going to have like a little, little airplane ride over, over some history. And so strapping because it's a great ride. Okay, it's really good. Uh, so the story of the Bible is basically the story of God's presence with his people. It began in the Garden of Eden, but our sin has separated us from God. And the rest of the story, really, of the Bible is how we can be put back in a relationship with God, him dwelling with us as his his people. That's our greatest need, to be in relationship with God, for him to be present with us. Now that happened in part with the tabernacle and the temple. God lived among his people But this pointed to a greater and more glorious manifestation of his presence, a kind of back to Eden, but better. And so what is being promised here is that greater glory, that greater presence, that Eden, but better, that is on the way. And initially, this promise from Haggai is fulfilled in part in the very short term. Because in the book of Ezra, in chapter 6, the finances of the Persian Empire are sent back down to Israel to pay for them to rebuild the temple. So the, the, the nations in that sense are sending treasure down. But later on in history, King Herod expanded the temple, making it bigger and, and more glorious in terms of splendor. But later on, over, over history though, God shook nations with the rise and the fall of, of the Greeks and the Romans so that Jesus would come to the world at just the right time in God's plan when there was a common language and roots to communicate the gospel. Uh, it was a, he made those kingdoms rise and those kingdoms fall so Jesus would come at just the right time. And when Jesus came, there was another shaking. Because at his birth, the cosmic order's upended because he's born of a virgin. Angels come and sing. Literally, the whole Roman world is shaken up when Caesar Augustus thinks that he is king and I'm going to count how many people I've got and show my greatness. But all the time, God is moving the whole Roman world so that Mary and Joseph get to Bethlehem at just the right time for Jesus to be born where God said he would be. The whole Roman Empire was shaken at Christmas time. And then when Jesus is born, the Magi... Foreigners from distant lands come with what to Jesus? With treasures. They bring their treasures to Jesus because Jesus is the dwelling place of God. John chapter 1, verse 14 says that Jesus is God come flesh dwelling among us. And in John chapter 2, Jesus said that his body is the temple. Jesus is God with us. So, of course, it makes sense for the Magi to bring. Their treasures to Jesus. At his death and resurrection, the earth literally shook as he brings us back into a relationship with him so we can be present with him. And then when Jesus ascends to heaven, the earth was shaken again on the day of Pentecost as the nations are shaken, coming to Jerusalem to receive the Holy Spirit. God comes and dwells in a multinational people who acknowledge Jesus as king. Do you see how this fulfills Haggai? And in Acts, we're told that the world was turned upside down by the Holy Spirit of God working through the people who are strong and work by his power. Literally, people from all nations are recognizing God as king, a fulfillment of the tribute being brought to this temple. And really, that's where we are now. Uh, we're kind of, if, if you think about the aeroplane ride, we're kind of in midair waiting to land. And God says, in a little while, you will. And the sermon will end in a little while, too. We will land it. Uh, but where we are now is in the period of church history where we are waiting for Jesus to return. One more time, God is going to shake the heavens and the earth. One more time, God is going to shake the nations. And the New Testament leaves us with a challenge from Haggai 2, because in Hebrews chapter 12, these words are quoted. Let me read you Hebrews 12. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. Speaking of the gospel. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. What he's saying is, there is a shaking coming, the return of Jesus Christ. And the shaking is not good news for those that reject Jesus. For those that reject Jesus, there is judgment to come. For those that have trusted in Jesus, they are what remains when the earth and the heavens are shaken. And so if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I urge you to turn to Jesus Christ. Because that day is imminent. It is imminent. Jesus could return anytime and shake the heavens and the earth and the nations. But for those that trust in Jesus, here's the most encouraging news of all. Because when Jesus returns, there will be a a new heavens and earth. And Revelation tells us that in this new heavens and earth, God's dwelling place is among the people. He will be with them and be their God. Not in a physical temple in Jerusalem or anywhere else, but the whole earth, the whole of the new creation, will be filled with God's glory, dwelling with his people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then we read these words in Revelation 21. And again, notice Haggai in these words. This is speaking of the new creation that's awaiting us. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, For the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. And what it's basically saying is this. On that day, everybody will recognize that God is king. And everybody who has put their trust in Jesus will do so with immense joy. And we will walk in the light of God's glory, dwelling with us forever. How encouraging is that, (laughs) right? And so that's what Haggai means in verse 9, where he says this, the glory... Of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. So that heaven that's to come, like Solomon's temple was was great. But nothing compared to this. This is the the most glorious, uh, well, it's just the most glorious thing ever. God will be with his people. And in this place I will grant peace. Nations won't be warring anymore. We will just acknowledge Jesus as king and have peace with him and with one another forever. And so here's where I want to land this plane. The kingdom of God, when you're looking down on it from above, looks small and insignificant compared to the kingdoms of the world, doesn't it? And we can wonder, is it worth it? Now don't do this on a plane, but if you just looked out the window (laughs) and you saw ahead and you fixed your eyes on where the destination is, You can keep going because it's glorious. It is the greatest destination ever. We are headed to a new creation, which Paul says this about. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. The things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. Now, if that does not encourage you, I've got nothing else. (laughs) That's the gospel, isn't it? That is the most encouraging news ever. And brothers and sisters, some of us are are, are discouraged. Some of us are grieving. Some of us are struggling. There's all sorts of things. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Remember God is with you. Remember the glory to come. Keep going with that in your mind. And those amazing promises will come to pass. So what we're going to do is we're going to sing because... These words make me want to sing, and we want to sing together. And the final two songs basically speak of uh, the two uh, encouragements that we read of. Uh, The first song is from Isaiah 43, where God speaks of how he is with us always. And then the second song is there is a higher throne which causes us to fix our eyes on the glory that's to come, the higher throne that is beyond what this world could ever know. So let's stand and let's celebrate and consider the promised presence and the future glory that we have. So let's stand together and sing. Let's hear these wonderful words of our gospel. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary what is unseen is eternal. This is our hope. Thanks be to God. Amen. 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 Thank you very much, Steve, for...